You're listening to episode 65 with Mark Roden, founder and chief executive at Ding. You're listening to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor podcast. I would say that the, the priority, again, looking back on, on, on our history, is to have both customer and product at the center of decision-making. And that means both these functions must report directly into the chief executive. And if that's the founder, that's the way you know it should be structured. Welcome back, listeners, to an all-new episode of The Multiplier Effect. This week, we are sharing one last recording from Endeavor's annual summit, featuring an incredible conversation with Rory Guinan, who leads Endeavor's Ireland office, and founder and chief executive at Ding, Mark Roden. He shares his learnings over the last 15 years of scaling Ding, which is now the number one API and online porter selling global airtime, data, gift vouchers, and bill payment company, and really how his approach to talent and his team has changed over time. We've really enjoyed sharing these special episodes with you, and this is a fascinating conversation. We're excited to share this one with you today as we close out the last of the recordings from our Endeavor Summit this year. There will be additional episodes for season three coming up, so please continue to listen in week by week. Every Friday, a new episode is released. Rory, take it away. Welcome from Endeavor Ireland. I'm Rory Guinan, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce our next session with Mark Rowe. Mark is a founding board member here at Endeavor Ireland and the chief executive and founder of Ding. Ding is a global mobile top-up service, allowing those with less to access more from around the world. Mark is the type of founder that we like best at Endeavor, that is a serial entrepreneur with three prior ventures under his belt. He founded Ding 15 years ago and has grown it to a point where it employs over 220 staff today and has accessed over 5 billion phone devices. Within the last month, Holland Street Capital took a majority stake in the business in what was a significant transaction. Of particular interest is that this was the first external funding undertaken by Ding, which means Mark's journey is different to many of the more recent scaling companies who take on material capital quite early. Given this ability to scale whilst truly private and self-funded or bootstrapped, we wanted to hear from Mark and his learnings over the 15 years and how his approach to talent and his team might have changed over that time. Mark, you're very welcome. Thank you, Rory. Delighted to be here. From the first time you and I met, it was clear how much emphasis you put on talent, getting the best person in each seat right across your organization. Did you always have a heavy focus on talent or was it something that you figured was missing because of a specific event or was it driven by necessity when you began to scale? So I think that my search for talent probably started, you know, not long after the business started. And I think that the emphasis was, in fact, the opposite, where I put priority over, you know, personal recommendations, people I trusted, who they recommended, et cetera, et cetera. So my early days in terms of hiring were based more on personality, emotion. Do I get on with them? Obviously, they had to have, if you like, a, a base hurdle in order to to do the role and they obviously accomplish that but if i you know look back on high in and in hindsight i'd say that gets you so far but when you scale you get greater possibilities with the organization because you've got more money you know scaling implies you're growing and when you're growing people are attracted 
and outside the organization, people are attracted to join because everybody wants to be, you know, part of an organization that is scaling really fast and that they're hearing good things about. So as the organization scaled and matured, you know, thankfully, so did my way of thinking about people. Yeah, we, we, I've heard that described as parochial hiring. You hire because you're, they play golf with your brother-in-law or they're from, they play the same they play in the same club in yours, whatever it is. And that's a, it's a particularly Irish thing being such a small market as well. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's true. I, I would, you know, agree with the parochial point. I think, you know, I was never really much of a golfer in those days. And it, it wasn't so much as, as, as looking for that part of the same club match that I was, I was looking for. But it was, it was really doubling down on my own opinion and my own point of view, which I think, you know, let's not, you know, let's not be too hard on, uh, let me not be too hard on myself. Um, I think that's right at the stage you're at. But equally, when you scale an organization and look back, I think you do things differently because I think you have the benefit of hindsight and, you know, happy to discuss that also. Well, that's one of the questions I was hoping to get to. If you look back and specifically think about the team and the people, is there one big win that stands out or else anything that you change or was there a loss that you wish you could revisit? Well, I, I think, you know, I stepped out of the organization and moved up to chairman. I was always chief executive and chairman. But I felt it would be right after 10 years to essentially get a better perspective on the organization, have a fresh look at the strategy. So I moved into chairman, stayed close to the business, obviously, but I wanted to get that external perspective. And that for me was a transformative event because it enabled me to, you know, stand back and, and, and engage with the with the organization from a distance. And I think that, you know, that gave me, you know, the real impetus on the importance of really being serious about people and talent. You actually, you actually put yourself through the formal external recruitment process, didn't you? I did because, you know, I'd stepped out of the organization. I engaged Spencer Stewart, really good guys to to conduct an objective evaluation of our leadership team and also our leadership requirements. So just because I owned a majority of the organization, I felt did not give me a free pass to exclude myself from that process. So what was interesting, though, was when I, I put myself into that process and I was, if you like, turning up as both chairman and in that role. But obviously I had been chief executive and the way that the response came was they said, look, we appreciate your chairman, but you keep answering the questions as though you're the chief executive. <laughs> and if we're honest, we feel that's the right uh, role for you in the organization. And even then, I mean, the one thing, if I look at your board, you certainly hire, hired ahead in terms of bringing in some of Ireland's best-known entrepreneurs and business leaders. So you were not looking for an easy ride because they're known to be tough taskmasters. How did you approach that aspect of, of the business and talent? Well, you know, I, I, I have a, a really good memory of one of the, the board directors when I came into a board meeting and one of my non-execs, Ray Nolan, who, who was uh, chairman of Excelco and founder of Hostel World, you know, said to me, so 
you coming into the board meeting today as chairman or are you representing the interests of management as chief executive or are you representing your own shareholding interests and that was about seven years ago and initially i was a bit taken aback saying you know like how could how could how could i be confronted like that and so you know it was a such a great question and it always has stuck with me which is the reality is as chairman and ceo you have a free pass you can forgive yourself as chief executive through your role as chairman and as chief executive you're not going to get that hard a ride from the chairman so you are depending on the the non-execs to keep you honest but the reality is that you know their hands are somewhat tied by you occupying both roles and if I were to do it again, I would definitely split that role much earlier on, those two roles of chairman and chief executive. Um, that to me would be a really big uh, change in how I you know, ran the organization. And after Ray pointed that out, I mean, the shareholder thing is one thing you can never unhitch. Mm. So did you, were you ever called out, so to speak, again um, at, with, at the board for thinking about a decision as a shareholder as opposed to the chief executive so two things happened you know firstly i was extremely conscious of it and so in board meetings i'd respond to questions you know literally i would announce i'm, I'm speaking as this as chairman it, you know if it was a question to management or to the to myself or if i'm chief executive i'm saying Look, I'm, I'm I'm speaking on behalf of the management. So I, I so I would give people the context for the question. It's much more important than I appreciated at the time. And to all the founder, shareholders, and and majority owners, I'd encourage you to to have a look at the the you know that relationship if that's what you have in place because you can do it and you can keep doing it. Um, and no one's going to challenge you. But the reality is, if you really want to get the best for, for the organization, the most important thing is for you to have the, the highest level of questioning and, and, and both supervision and also, you know, engagement for both the board and management. Because, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have, you can't run a business with the management when you're coming into a board meeting and you don't, and they don't know if if you're going to have their back or not as chief executive. And all of a sudden you kind of take off your chief executive hat on and you put on your chairman hat mm -hmm. and say, oh, what the hell is going on here? And they're like, well, you know what's going on because you're the chief executive. But no one's going to say that when you're when you're occupying both roles. And, and thinking about the organization structure, apart from the best people, how much time did you put into how the organization or the org chart was structured in terms of reporting lines or even creating new roles on the exec team? Well, um, you know, it starts with it starts with being able to engage in a really good conversation about talent and about people. And for that, for me, that means having an excellent chief people officer in the role. And, you know, just like your CFO is almost, you know, your most important go to person in terms of the, you know, the everything financial and, and, and critical in terms of, you know, the operations of the business. As the business scales, you really want to have, you know, a handle on that. As important, and I'd, I'd, I'd almost argue more important, is to have a really, really world-class chief people officer. 
That means it's got a seat at the leadership table. It's not a function that reports to somebody who reports to you. It's a direct report to you. And, you know, and, and I have really benefited from having an outstanding chief people officer in Fiona Mullen, who headed up this function for Facebook globally up to a couple of years ago. And she just transformed the way we think about people and, and to be honest, the way I think about them. And Fiona, Fiona's a mentor here at Endeavour Ireland, and she did a great podcast for The Multiplier Effect, which is available on Spotify if anyone wants to listen to it. And one of the things that I, I distinctly recall was she said over her career, she, you know, what she's noticed is that the, the, the CPO or the head of HR has become closer to the chief executive, has become more important and involved, and she sees that continuing. So it's definitely a recognition of this whole topic. And slightly sort of on that, but away from Ding, I've come across founders who are who have incredibly well thought out structures, even far ahead of some of their larger peers. And it's almost like they're taking it line by line from a textbook. Do you think you could have too formal or rigid an approach to structures or will it always stand to the organization over time? Uh, well, well, the first part of your question is good because it, it implies that I'll that the chief executive is putting, or, or that the founder and chief executive, I'm assuming in this case, is putting a lot of thought into this. But the real question is, what are you trying to solve for? And I would say that the, the priority, again, looking back on, on, on our history, is to have both customer and product at the center of decision-making. And that means both these functions must report directly into the chief executive. and. If that's the founder, that's the way, you know, it should be structured. So I think, you know, any discussion around structure should follow a discussion around, you know, what we're trying to solve and, and that should follow a discussion around strategy. So people, the actual people to go into these roles comes after the strategy is agreed. And, and again, at what stage did you hand over the ownership, going back to, to Fiona in particular in the CPO role, but at what stage did you think it was appropriate to, to pass over the ownership of hiring of the people team to somebody else? Well, I think you never really hand over, you know, complete responsibility for leadership talent because, you know, your, your leadership group is, is the only group that you have direct visibility for on the day-to-day -day basis, you know, pretty quickly after joining through, you know, engaging with Fiona outside of the six leaders that we brought, brought in to complement, or five leaders that we brought in to complement the two existing ones, we then, you know, about six months later added a bench and, and that bench comprised the next level of, of talent in the organization of about 16 people. And, you know, if, if you don't have a bench, then you're not getting leverage from your leadership. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, you really want to be to start having visibility of people, you know, one layer um, removed from your leadership team as well, so that you can can, you know, um, get a sense for if that person, you know, was out on vacation, who's filling that slot? And I encourage my leadership team to, you know, A, if they're not able to attend a meeting, to have their, you know, somebody, their number two attend, because it gives great exposure to them and helps them mature and develop. I was talking to another business earlier on, they're growing at 100%, and it was a mentorship session. And they were told that 
if you're growing at 100%, whatever you're doing today, someone else is going to be doing this time next year for you. So you always have to think about the next person and how you're going to move away from those roles. I guess, get out of the weeds. But in terms of having to grow the team, and now you're talking not just the senior leadership team, but the, the level under them or the tier under them, do you think the current environment is the toughest you've seen for acquiring talent? You know, I think if we look back in the last seven or eight years, there's always been, you know, immense demand for really good dev talent for, you know, programmers, developers. There's always been good, uh, strong demand for really good product people. There's no doubt that it's as hot now as it's ever been. But, you know, there's no substitute for not being in that market. If you're compromising on the quality of of the people you're bringing into product and you're compromising on the quality of people you're bringing into customer and how close you stay to that, then it has a ripple down effect. So it's absolutely critical, you know, to pay what it takes to get the best talent in. I know for a number of roles, we paid, if you like, call it ahead of our skis. Mm -hmm. And they were conscious decisions that I, to be honest, wish I'd made earlier on in our, in our journey. And that ties into my comment earlier on that, you know, you, you did self-fund this for all well, up to last month, 15 years. So do you think you could have grown earlier or hired better talent, afforded better talent, if perhaps you'd taken in uh, external capital earlier? No, I, I, because capital wasn't the constraint. We were making money, you know, after a few years. And, and so if I, you know, the first, after the first four or five years, we were kind of bumping along on, on an EBITDA positive basis and, and then scaling and growing. But we probably spent too long admiring the bottom line and not, and, and, and congratulating ourselves on that because not a lot of self-funded businesses were doing that. But to be honest, we weren't spending enough time on measuring ourselves relative to you know the other international organizations that were growing much faster. And if I were to do it again, I would invest much sooner in internationally experienced people talent. You know, get somebody who is not just a peer, but somebody who's not afraid of you as 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 you know, chairman or or founder, shareholder, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the toughest thing to get is that honest feedback. And everybody says that, you know, they're not, they're not afraid to give direct feedback to the chief executive. I, you know, that's not been my experience. And I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not like, um, you know, Elon Musk who's going to blow people out of it, you know, on a, on a particular day if for saying the wrong thing or looking at them the wrong way. But, you know, it's really, really hard to get feedback. And I, again, you know, that was one of the things we instigated was formally setting up almost homework style one-on-ones to both give and receive feedback and you know that's something which i think you never you never grow too big to get and what were the key kpis for those for the metrics that you tracked and um, so you know sorry kpis to, to just in terms them. of measuring how the team is performing or how the team is gelling or the culture so so first of all we, if you like, got the leadership together. We really nailed down what is our vision, what are our values, um, what are we trying to achieve, 
and and you know we got consensus around them and and they became very much uh, part of our culture and um, in terms of kpis the the kpi build and, and development and implementation process is something that's absolutely critical the ones that we we measure are more around the performance of the business we look at you know you know we in terms of structure we look at you know salary plus 50% bonus we look at kpis regularly in terms of you know we we bonus every 6 months we work quarterly and moved it to 6 months because it was becoming too much like you know you finish one quarter and you're halfway through mm-hmm. the next before you need to start evaluating people so we're very careful around goal setting and then particularly engaged around evaluation of those goals after the event as well and what the performance was of them as measured by independent KPIs relative to or relevant to that sector of the business. And how involved would you have been as chief executive? So very involved in the goal setting, agreement of them, you know, and working closely with the Fiona, you know, how we're going to make sure each of the senior leaders are, are set up in terms of their goals. Do I agree with them? bring in the CFO to get a different perspective as well. So it's almost like a, a triumvirate of, mm-hmm. of uh, talent evaluation. And then the, the, then they're issued. And then after, you know, six months, the goals evaluation process is a detailed one-on-one review. A uh, certain percentage is evaluated to individual goals, another percentage to team goals, and another percentage to the overall percentage of performance of the business. Pretty detailed. In fairness, would it have been that detailed five years ago, 10 years ago? No. Okay. So that's evolved over time. Just thinking about the time frame that, you know, again, 15 years is a long time to be in business and the world has changed. So cognizant of that, and, and, and let's be honest, the overall lack of diversity in Ireland even today, how have you ensured that Ding progressed and kept DNI to the fore? as Ding matured and, and the wider awareness of diversity grew around you. And, and what benefits have you seen by being more diverse as these scales? You know, I think it's a really good question because, you know, often in Ireland we're, we're regarded, you know, in some ways as being a little bit, you know, on the outside of, of these questions, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion. But that's not the way it should be. And just because we're, you know, the last island, you know, in the Atlantic before America doesn't give us a free pass. So, again, it comes down to you as the chief executive. How much do you believe in this? And it's not somebody else's responsibility. It's yours. In our so, case. Yep. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. Once a culture comes back to effectively. It does. But the culture starts with you. You know, as the leader, you're the one setting the pace, you know. You're the one who sets the whole culture about how you engage with people, you know, when things are good, but especially when things are bad, you know, how are you going to get the best out of people, you know, rocking up when you're in bad form and, 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 you know, not happy with things is going to be seen by 20 people as you just walk around the organization and that then projects, you know, onto their day. So you can't afford to do that. But but back to the diversity and inclusion, you know, this is something which if you take it seriously and it becomes a value that you ask about and 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 measure yourself with measures 
as are evident in the organizations that you respect. Start there. So did you look at other organizations and see how they were doing it? That's where you took your line from initially? Yeah, we did. And, and we looked very carefully at, at what we could do in terms of, of diversity and inclusion. You know, what are the what are the values we want to represent and project? both people were trying to attract, but also people were trying to retain and all hands speaking about it and at, at other gatherings and groups. You know, it's it's not like some kind of rote uh, message that I'm reading off a script. It's something that I believe and that I'm passionate about, passionate about. And I think also acknowledging if it's. If it hasn't been good in the past, then then saying that, you know, and being honest about that this is something, you know, that you're working on. You mentioned your all hands. You mentioned your all hands. So I'm just curious how, because I know you used to do them in the office there behind you and, and they were all, everyone in used to get external speakers in. How have you managed to do that and build that through COVID and, and what might it look like into the future? Well, there's a there's a great uh, product called Zoom that you may have heard of. And, <laughs> Too uh, much, and uh, you know that that was just that was just super. We were able to engage some really diverse and interesting people in Ireland. Not many of our international audience will know, I'm sure, of of Panty Bliss, who is you know, quite a character who brought great uh, emphasis during our our, our uh, all our events around LG, LGBT support. You know. Brilliant. So yeah, they weren't all sort of dollars and cents uh, business focused, although Pansy Bliss is a pretty good business operator for sure. Um, and I know you had Shane Curran in as well from Evervolt. So Shane, you know, I find Shane extremely impressive, you know, and and I, I did ask him, you know, a question because I, I uh, took on the, the, the role that you're taking on today, Rory, of interviewing him. And Shane is an out and out product founder again. He's um, he's probably not yet at the at the scale of international recognition that he will be, but he is somebody who is is I think he's about twenty one or so, and he's founded a business all around you know security and not just building on security after the event, but in in engaging with security as the code has been written and his business everything i think is destined for great things but i do remember asking him what if what if product is not at the center of your organization how do you think you're going to get on and he just looked at me like i had three heads and he, was, <laughs> he said probably not well you know so it was a great reminder for me as, as chief executive to to address that and into the future, could you see yourself assisting somebody like that, an earlier stage founder who it's all product, product, product. Could you see yourself being the person to come in and, with respect, should give them the gray hair about, you know, these are the road, these are the bumps you're going to face. Don't, you know, at some point you're going to have to pull yourself away from product and think about team and the future, et cetera. Well, I mean, you know, the, the guys in Stripe, again, they're, you know, they're product people um, all day long. I mean, they're the people I learn from. It's not me giving them experience. It's, um, you know, I learn an immense amount from just observing really strong product-driven people. Jack Dorsey is the same. People who, you know, take their iPhone out of their pocket and, and they look at something and they, the, the UX bothers them and they go fix it Im immediately, you know? So, you know, I do have a, a, a mantra that I 
I, I still believe in, which is, you know, as, as, a, as a founder, you know, don't let something pass you by that you can change. You know, you know, privilege of being a founder is that you get the choice to make change and make change happen. And for me, that's one of the greatest enjoyments that I get out of being a chief executive. I don't always get it right. And, and I'm, I'm sure, as I've tried to highlight, that if I were to do it again, I'd do it better or else maybe fire myself sooner. I don't know. <laughs> Well, listen, Mark, we're, we're up on time, but look, that was super. You're a great advocate for entrepreneurship, and I know your participation and endeavor, you're very active, and you're very giving of your time, and you're always willing to share learning. So thank you very much, and continued success to you and all the team at Ding. Thanks so much, and, and uh, it's a pleasure, and one of my best learning experiences has been involved with Endeavor, so many thanks. Super. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for joining us for this special summit feature. For more information on this episode and to find out how you can gain access to some of the content from our summit that perhaps was not shared on the episode, head to the Multiplier Effect Podcast.org. See you next week for an all new episode focused on hiring for scale.